You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the game of basketball. Tune in for episodes about anything basketball related, on the court, off the court, and anything in between. We at the After the Timeout podcast would like to take a full timeout to talk about V-Reps basketball. Coaches, do you get frustrated by how some players just cannot seem to learn your offensive system? Are you spending countless hours teaching your offensive system to your team just for them to forget by the next practice? You should check out V-Reps. V-Reps was founded by basketball players and coaches to create tools that make learning plays easily a reality. V-Reps allows coaches to turn their 2D playbook into a 3D interactive video game that players can watch on any mobile device on their own time. Don't just have players watch film, have them live it and control the players so that they have a better, more efficient learning experience. It's free to try. Go to vreps.us to sign up today. On today's episode, we're joined by Brandon Chambers, assistant basketball coach at Texas Southern University. Um, you probably also know him from some of the virtual coaches clinics, and he's an awesome uh, Twitter follow. Uh, coach, how you doing today? Thank you so much for joining us. Good, man. I appreciate you guys having me on. So, Coach, we like to start with a segment we call the opening tip, just a, a fun way to start. So, you know, we, we like to do our homework on our guests, and, and we – noticed that you know over your years you worked in abundance at just different summer camps five star hoop mountain hoop group elite uh etc so could you share with our listeners you know maybe a funny story or a memory or something that sticks out from working all those summer camps over the years well and and i think times have changed a little bit just as far as kind of how things have uh i guess the rite of passage for coaching uh, and what I mean by that is, I think, and this is before me, but coaching camps was kind of your initiation into college basketball. I think any, any level really, but more so in college basketball. Uh, before the NCAA created rules that Division One coaches could not work camps, it, it was the, you know, the rite of passage for coaches to, to get in the door and to meet you know, other coaches, whether it be at, you know, a five-star hoop group or, you know, one of the major companies, or if you went to a school's camp, you know, um, but times have changed a little bit. Uh, I was kind of on the tail end of that whole deal, but the way that I was when I was first starting in the business, people would give me advice. You know, I'd, I'd run around and ask anyone and everyone to give me advice. And one of the first things that I was told was to, work as many camps as you can. And so what I did was I signed up for every single camp I could on the East coast. Uh, so when, uh, when you ask the question, there's not really a single memory or moment that I can recall that. I mean, there's, there's thousands of them, uh, for sure, but there's not really a single memory or moment that stands out 
in front of the other. I think the thing that I remember the most to tie it all together is it was kind of my initiation into basketball. I was driving around in a Pontiac Sunfire, 2004 Pontiac Sunfire with 200,000 miles on it. I basically lived in my car, uh, drove from Hoop Group in Philly to Yukon's day camp uh, to Pittsburgh's camp. I uh, went down to Radford and did an elite camp. Then I went to Kentucky. Then I'm working George. May it just was nonstop for three, four years of just week after week after week. And to be honest, it was my only source of income at the time. Uh, you know, when you're young in the business, it's just kind of how you have to go about it. And my stipend, if you want to call it a stipend, uh, coaching division three, only was for 10 months. So for those two summer months, I had to work and that was my, the, you know, my income and, and how I fed myself, how I paid my bills. And so I basically for two months, for three, four years, did nothing but live in my car and work camps. You name a school, I probably worked it on the East Coast. So uh, that's probably the first thing that pops into my mind when you mention the camp grind. Oh, that's definitely a, a, a great story um you know driving driving around it's a that's awesome experience um so i want to start kind of the beginning uh, of your career you're you're a manager uh at, when you attended vcu um and, and there's there's shaka smart as the head coach wade miller mike rhodes mike jones as assistants now all of those guys are d1 coaches right at, at different schools um you know First of all, you know, how was that experience learning from them and maybe some of the lessons you learned along the way from from those guys as you were interacting with them? Yeah, the first thing I think is, and I don't mean this in an arrogant or an egotistical way, but I tell everyone that I'm the luckiest guy in college basketball because I walked into a Final Four. I, I had no intention of coaching when I was younger. You know, I played sports. I was, you know, in normal kid that just tried to do a, a whole lot of everything. I, I was passionate about basketball. I love basketball, but uh, when you're 5'11 and uh, can't jump over a phone book, it, you know, your, your ceiling is uh, not very high, uh, but I love the game and, and, you know, wanted to be around it. Uh, but I didn't go to VCU to like be a coach or even to learn from Shaka because Shaka didn't get there until my junior year, you know? So uh, first and foremost, I was extremely lucky to be around those guys and, and have the opportunity to learn from them. Also, the second point is I was extremely naive because I thought those guys were the norm of college basketball, which I guess is a double-edged sword because I thought that this is how everyone operates. And also as naive and, and uh, I guess, moronic that I was, I thought you just go to the final four every year. <laughs> you know, I, I just was so just, I had no idea how things really worked and how hard it was um, at that time to, to really get to that level. You know, I just wasn't exposed to college basketball, uh, but they just, they're elite human beings, man, every single one of them. And uh, if you look at every person on that staff, they're all a head coach. You know, uh, Shaka obviously just got uh, the job at Marquette 
Uh, Mike Jones is actually just got the job. He was at Radford for a number of years and just got the job at UNCG, I believe. Uh, Mike Rhodes is now at VCU. Uh, he went to Rice and then came back uh, to be the head coach at VCU. Will Wade at LSU. So if you look at the entire staff, they've all moved on and, and obviously the success has propelled them to be head coaches. But everything that they did was first and foremost elite. How they operated just day to day as human beings to how they treated the players, uh, how they went about their craft. Uh, there was a high level of detail, high level of communication. And I was really fortunate. You know, I wish I could tell you that, you know, I had this grand scheme or plan to to be around these guys. And, you know, uh, I know like people that go to Duke and or UNC and want to be a Duke manager or UNC manager, or, you know, one of those blue bloods that, you know, there's an application process and you have to interview and you may not get it. And there's 25 managers. And, you know, like we, we had, I think, two managers, one, you can, another guy that I think helped out <laughs> occasionally, uh, you know, so it, it just, it, I kind of walked into it and uh, was just really fortunate. And, you know, and, and on that note, because we only had two or three guys, it was more exposure for, for me and for the others, you know, we were able to do more, you know, and, and, and we're given more responsibility. Um, but no, I, I appreciate my time there. And to be honest, the way that I am as a coach and how I shape my, my coaching and my craft is, is solely based off of those two years I spent with Coach Smart and the rest of that staff. So I think it's interesting, you know, you, you took a, you know, you, you worked your way up, you know, when we think about the, the eyes of coaching, you know, you go from like a, a student assistant or a student manager, and, and then you kind of went into that director of basketball operations role for, for Musselman at Nevada. And we haven't really talked to anybody, any of our guests that have really held that role of, of director of basketball operations. So you know, can you kind of talk to our listeners about, you know, what does that role actually entail? And, and then obviously anything you learned in that role from coach Musselman or coaches on the staff or just doing that role in general. Yeah. And, and it's a little different with coach Musselman because of how he operates with his staff. So in general, in college basketball, the, the Dobo spot director of basketball operations is a spot that's primarily dedicated to the ins and outs of uh, operations, obviously. Uh, but uh, anything that happens behind the scenes that you don't necessarily see as an outsider, for example, travel, uh, which can include flights, hotels, buses, uh, handling the contracts, making sure the team can get from point A to point B on time, and uh, in the fashion that, that the head coach wants to, to travel or whatever it might be, uh, camps, uh, you know, any of the day-to-day -day stuff. It's, it's all stuff behind the scenes that people don't really think about. Uh, but with Coach Musselman, it was very, very different. So the way that he operates, and I think this is more so from his NBA background, was every person was involved in every meeting. So for me, that was gold because I, I came there as a video coordinator for a year and uh, I was in every Dobo meeting. I was in every assistant coaching meeting. I was in fundraising. I was in alumni, you know, every single meeting I was involved in, in some capacity. And he encourages 
group think and encourages people to speak up if they have an opinion. You know, it's kind of the the, the old adage where if you're going to give your opinion, you better be able to defend it uh, because if it's, you know, he, he's, he's going to challenge you. You know, he's not just going to allow you to speak your mind and, and, you know, run with it. So, you know, for me, it was a lot of just kind of watching, listening and learning from others. And it was an easy transition when he offered me the Dobo spot after my first year, because I had been involved in all of those things. You know, there, there was obviously some, some things I had to learn along the way, but, you know, as far as travel was concerned, shoot, I, I was involved in every single travel meeting, how to set up the hotel contracts, how to work with the uh, hotel manager with the food and uh, making sure the head coach was taken care of with X, Y, and Z, and then the bus contracts. And, uh, so I, I kind of, you know, had a cheat sheet going into it uh, and had all the answers to the test. But um, yeah, it's 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 a good role if you want to. There's two routes typically people take when they take a Dobo spot. Number one, it's a stepping stone to become an assistant coach, you know, video coordinator, Dobo, those non-coaching staff positions. And then two, a lot of people, uh, I have a good friend, Matt Soria at San Diego State. He's been the Dobo at San Diego State since uh, Coach Fisher was the head coach and he took over. So he was a student manager and moved up and became Dobo and ha has no intention of coaching. He wants to be in administration. That's kind of his deal. So those are the two routes. Uh, you know, people say you can get pigeonholed if you're in the position too long. I'm not really a believer in any of that stuff. I just think you, you know, you got to go where, where you can and, and learn from the people you can. And that was a great opportunity for me to, to be around, obviously, Eric Musselman, one of the best coaches in the country and, uh, get to learn the, the coaching world from the foundational level. So. Now moving on to your your assistant coaching career, you're named a UA top thirty under thirty assistant coach. Um, we wanted to pick your brain a little bit, um, you know, because every this is this is such a huge topic. You know, finding your assistants and, and finding good fits. Um, you know, especially nowadays with coaches going going everywhere, even at the high school level. Um, so, what do you believe? You know makes a great assistant coaches, maybe two or three traits that you feel like a, a young assistant or assistant trying to come up can, can work to uh, aspire to be the best for the program they work for. Yeah. The first thing I would say is, and, and I think this is part of the issue in, in our profession specifically, uh, you know, and I can't really, I guess that's a naive comment to make uh, just because you know, I, I've never worked outside of college coaching, but I think in our profession, we're always, and I'm a victim of this too, uh, we're always look, kind of looking towards the next job. You know, we're always looking uh, ahead and we have to constantly remind ourselves that the best job is the one you have. Uh, so the first point I would make is that for anybody that wants to move up in the coaching world, the first thing is, focus on the job you have. Um, you know, every day that, that you go into work is a, is a job interview. And it's really about focusing on that task just of that day and whatever you have to get done and being elite in that. And then obviously as you, you know, build relationships and, and 
build a reputation and a, and a name for yourself and get to know more people in your network expands as uh, I'm a big reader as, as Sun Tzu says, uh, opportunities are multiplied as they are seized, meaning the longer that you're in it, the more network that you have, the more opportunities you have, it's just going to constantly more and more uh, opportunities are going to more, they're going to just kind of create themselves over time if you do a great job. Um, but it all starts with doing a great job with your initial job. You know, you can't look down the road and, and, and get caught, you know, you know, peeking into the future and, and lose sight of the now. Um, so that's the first point I'd make. The second point I'd make is, and this is uh, just kind of some advice that I've learned uh, over time. When I left VCU as a student manager and became a graduate assistant and assistant coach at the division three level, uh, it was kind of an odd piece of advice that Mike Rhodes gave me, uh, who's now the head coach at VCU. He said, never be a yes man. And what that means is if you can sit in a meeting and, and challenge, obviously, in an appropriate way, your head coach, whether it be on a philosophy or a topic or uh, whatever it might be. But if you really think that there's a better way of doing something, don't be a yes man just to move on with the meeting or uh, appease your head coach. Again, obviously, there's an appropriate way to do it, but not being a yes man, um, it, you know, it isn't going into a meeting and just being, you know, uh, an asshole and, and, you know, arrogant, having this huge ego. It's, uh, you know, if, if you really feel strongly about something, hey, coach, the way that we're guarding pick and rolls, I think if, if we were to try this, uh, maybe we play in drop coverage. Maybe we, we, we try to flat hedge it. Uh, maybe we trap it. Uh, and you have some examples and you can really go to bat with it and it can help your program. I, I think that's, even if your head coach says no, you have to be great at giving suggestions because ultimately he's the, the, the decision maker. Uh, so I would say the, the second thing is, is never be a yes man. Really, really dive into your craft and if you can make your program better i think it's important to to do that and then the last thing i think is i think we get to a place especially in college basketball where there's there's niches and we get to a place in our career where you're almost marketed off that niche like your brand is that niche um and what i mean by that is you know there's great recruiters you know, and then there's great X's and O's guys. And there's great, you know, like we talked about being guys, guys that are dobos, guys that are great at the operation stuff. And I think it's the, the onus has to be on you as a coach to constantly try to improve and expand whatever your, your strengths are and, and improve upon whatever your weaknesses are. So, you know, if you're a great recruiter, watch film every day. Uh, call other coaches and pick their brain about, you know, some of the stuff they do. Uh, you know, for me, my only competitive advantage is my work ethic. And so I really tried to just outwork people just because of my background. I didn't play at a high major level. I didn't, you know, I was fortunate to work with some of the guys that I've worked with and I've learned a tr tremendous amount, but I watch a ton of film um, just to learn, you know, like a lot, a lot of it's monotonous, but it's really the only competitive advantage I have over others. 
And uh, I don't want to be known as a recruiter. You know, I don't want to be known as a, as a Dobo. Um, so I want to expand my horizon and, and knowledge base. So that's really something I try to do uh, and get better at every day. Recruiting wise, you know, that's kind of the tough one because if you don't have the contacts or the network, it's kind of hard to go about that. Uh, but you can always, I mean, with, with the, you know, revolution of social media, um, <laughs> to be honest, I don't think kids or coaches uh, communicate anymore over the phone. It's just Twitter <laughs> or uh, Instagram. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's really that excuse anymore that you don't have the contacts. Um, but if, if you're known as an X's and O's guy and you want to develop a recruiting base, I think the, the first thing is, is trying to touch base with those, the, with those coaches, whether it be college, high school, AAU, overseas. It's so easy to go online now and, and find contact information and to reach out. Um, so that's the third piece I'd say is just make sure you're constantly, you know, beating on your craft and trying to get better, trying to be a holistic coach, not just a recruiter, not just an X's and O's guy. So you, you mentioned networking, you just talked a lot about it. I want to specifically talk about for, for, it could be any coach, right. Or, or any profession really, um, you know, some of those, some of those networking skills and, and maybe techniques that you've kind of found effective. Obviously John and I have learned, uh, through this podcast, like you, like you just said that just reaching out to people and, and, and contacting people that people that you didn't think maybe willing to talk to, you know, we'll have conversations and, and do things like that. But what are some of the, you know, maybe the, the key things you've learned on, on the networking front and maybe some techniques that could help a, a young coach or, or, you know, maybe a high school assistant trying to get a, a, a varsity job, um, you know, down the road. Yep. And this is something that I've talked about quite a bit. Actually, most people that have me on zooms or podcasts ask me about this topic. And I think it's just, solely based on my career path. Um, I had to learn a lot about networking very early on. And there's this like this negative connotation with the word networking, um, you know, and so I've kind of changed it in my own vocabulary to connecting. I just, I think that when people hear networking, there's an inauthentic relationship uh, creation, you know, and um, you know, I, so I've kind of changed it to connecting uh, so for me, I've, I've learned a few things that have really helped. And, uh, if anyone takes anything from this podcast, I've probably given this speech or had this conversation with, I don't know, maybe over a hundred student managers that are looking to move up in the, the business, uh, and probably 50 different, you know, zooms or podcasts, whatever it might be. So. Uh, if you learn anything, please take this to heart because this is, you know, this is not, uh, you know, knowledge that I learned from watching film or something that uh, someone told me. This is real life experience, experience from, from my end. So number one, relationships are the key to anything that you do in life, specifically in our profession. It's, it's, that's your that's your moneymaker. I mean, you're, you're never going to go anywhere in life really uh, without strong relationships. I use a quote a lot with younger guys and it's build a well before you need it. And so, you know, when you look at the quote, it, obviously it, it speaks for itself, but it, I think 
the word networking has a negative connotation because people try to build the well, but they really half-heartedly go into that process of building that well. And then when they need it, it doesn't pay its dividends that they thought, right? So really invest in the relationships that you have. Uh, I read a great book called The Power of Who uh, by Bob Bodine. Uh, it's a great one. It talks about who's your hundred people. So the hundred people in your network, and you can split it up into categories however you want uh, that, that you consider strong relationships or weak relationships, uh, mild relationships, and people that could be people that you want to know. And how do you invest in those those relationships? Uh, people that are decision makers, you know. And how do you attack that list of a hundred? Uh, th there's been numerous experiments and uh, research done on the number of people that uh, a human being can really invest in and, and have strong relationships with. And the the, the number one hundred is right around that range of uh, of a human being's kind of maximum potential to have strong relationships with. So he uses that number. And I think it's a, it's a good number, you know, go through your phone book, go through your Rolodex and find your hundred people that you can call or pick their brain or, or, you know, maybe it's a list of, you know, hundred and there's 25 on there that, Hey, these are my gold contacts, guys that I want to get to know, you know, head coaches, uh, assistant coaches uh, that I think are elite and that I want to invest in. And, you know, maybe write to and, and see if I can get them on the phone. Um, you know, maybe there's 25 of those guys, uh, but make sure you have a list and, and really invest and take the time to get to know those people and in, in those relationships and never asking for anything in return. Uh, so, you know, again, I think so many times people half-heartedly go into the networking process and they, you know, they just want to get a phone number, really. I mean, uh, because they don't follow up. They don't really get to know the other individual. Um, and, and, you know, it's it, it almost it's almost a waste of time, to be honest. And I hate saying it like that, but it's it's really almost a waste of time. You know, I, I call those coaches the holiday coaches, the holiday networks, because you only hear from them on your birthdays and on Christmas and Thanksgiving, you know, and they send the random text and and then, uh, you know, when, when you get a job or, you know, they need a job now, all of a sudden you're hearing from them and it just, it, it, it life doesn't work like that. You know, you, you have to really be invested in the other individual. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's really the starting point. The other thing I like to do when I give this, this talk is talk about two to three tangible things that I do, because I get it all the time from high school coaches that are trying to move up. And I just, I, I don't know how I can, how I can get in front of these coaches, or I don't know how I can touch base with these coaches. And uh, I'm very, you know, my dad was in the military. I'm very black and white. There's no gray area with me. So I, if I call a spade a spade, I, you know, I say that's BS, you know, like that's an excuse that you're making in your head. Because if you're a shark, if you really want this, like if your life depended on it, you'd find a way to, to, to get in touch with these people and to build relationships. So some tangible advice that I've used people that they're that have told me, Hey, this is what you should do or stories that I've heard. I send out an insane amount of text messages every day. Uh, you know, back in the day it was emails. Now it's, you know, obviously text messaging has you know, become a thing, 
So every morning I read for an hour. Uh, it could be a book, obviously articles, whatever it might be. If I see something that I like, I text it to somebody. A lot of times, for example, you know, like uh, I've had the opportunity to get to know Tom Crane, Buzz Williams, uh, you know, Shaka Smart, obviously. A lot of times those guys don't respond because they're, they're busy individuals. It's early in the morning. They've got families. They've got to run their own program. I don't expect anything in return. My whole thing is I just want them to know that, number one, I'm invested. Number two, obviously, if I can provide any value to them in their program. Uh, three, you know, it, it, I'm just con continuing to stay on their mind space, you know, um, whatever it might be. Uh, the, the second thing is watching film. If, if you watch film, two things happen. Number one, you're going to learn from wh whoever's coaching in the game, whatever action you see. That gives you a great opportunity to, to, to reach out to that coach and say, hey, coach, saw you guys ran this action late in this game, uh, really like this series. Can, you, can I get you on the phone just to kind of walk me through it? Boom. Initial conversation done. People love talking about themselves and particularly their offense. Uh, you know, so that's number one, what you're going to learn. And number two, you're going to increase your knowledge of the game. And if you see something you like, again, it goes back to the, the reading and the articles, gives you an opportunity to cut the film. I don't know, you know, even just screen record it, you know, and send it out. Hey, coach, really like this set, you know, uh, think you guys might be able to use it in your 40 series, whatever, you know, whatever ball screen motion, uh, you know, Gonzaga ran a, a great quick hitter for this at, after timeout, uh, thought you may enjoy it. Boom. Again, as long as you're not, uh, you know, going into it half-heartedly, I think anybody, any human being uh, will, will respond in a, in a polite manner. And uh, a lot of times, again, like I said, I don't get, answers back and I've been told you know no a thousand times and it's just part of the deal man it's it's you know I, I don't hold it against anybody it's it's just part of the deal and um, I don't ask for anything in return hopefully at some point those relationships pan out but you know for me it's just me investing and and uh, we'll see what happens but those are two or three different things that I've done uh, I could talk about this stuff forever just because it's essentially been my key to success in, in my career. Uh, but, you know, I, I'd, I'd really, if, if you're a high school coach or AAU coach and, and you want to get in front of these guys or at least, you know, start the bridge of communication, those are some things I would do is, is just start reaching out to coaches, asking for advice, uh, watching film, reading articles, Sending it out, I think that's a great way to, to stay in touch and, and obviously provide value to them. And then when the time comes, you know, obviously being able to ask the question, hey, coach, hey, hey, if you ever hear of anything, if you ever hear of an opportunity, please keep me in mind. I'd love to uh, love to, to take you up on it or uh, hear more about uh, something you may hear about. I think that that is I think in anything in life, it's all about relationships and who, you know, and, and it outside of basketball, any career. So I, I think for anybody that just listened that is in any sort of whether it's business or education or anything, I, I think that was phenomenal advice. So thank you for that coach. 
Um, can, you I, know, can I follow up on that real please, quick too? Please. Because, and I actually just said it in my uh, question, then the, the one thing that I've noticed, because again, I've, I've given that same talk or had that conversation with so many student managers. The one thing that people really struggle with, and Bob Bodine uh, talks about this in his book, the number one thing people struggle with is not actually making the connection. It's the follow-up. People don't struggle with the initial communication, whether it be sending out a text, email, writing a letter. What it is, is the follow-up. I've, again, probably, let's say, let's keep it a, a good number, 100 people. I've probably talked to 100 student managers have reached out. They, they see I'm a student manager. They heard one of my, my talks and, and they, they write me a letter or they send me a, a message and say, hey, coach, would love to get you on the phone. I, I talk to every single one of them just because I was never, I'm, I was that person 10, 11, 12 years ago. So I, I try to make a point of it to, to touch base with those individuals. But I would say out of 100, less than 10 have followed up. And I think that's, number one, it's insane. Number, I mean, I guess you could, you could infer from that that people come to the realization that it's a little bit harder to get into coaching than, than you think. Um, but uh, it, I think the follow-up is so critical, you know, like, again, don't be a holiday coach. Don't be a holiday network where you're only hitting somebody on, on Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever it might be. Follow up. Even if you get a no, it's still better for you to follow up than them not to hear from you. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we couldn't say it any better. I, Todd and I say all the time, even if you're going for a job or whatever, the worst thing somebody could tell you is no and whatever. They told you no, you move on. So um, we, wanted to, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about just, you know, you've obviously been a part of a few programs that, you know, obviously had some great success, made the tournament, et cetera. You know, in your mind, what separates those programs, the consistent winning programs from other programs? Obviously, let's take out talent because obviously we could say talent is is number one. But outside of talent, what separates those those elite programs from those middle level programs? Yeah, uh, well, you just said it consistency. I think what happens is. Number one complacency is a killer. I think anybody that, that has achieved any level of success in their life, whether it be personally or with the team, I think that psychology of feeling like you've made it or the not willing to put in the work, you know, that complacency, it's almost like a, uh, it's a veil that gets put over you or your players, uh, you know, the wool over your eyes where, you know, you, you just kind of think you've made it. And you don't have to put in the same amount of work that you have to put in uh, for the next championship or for the next banner, whatever it might be. I think consistency of your approach, never getting too high, never getting too low, sticking to the process. I think if you are consistent every day and what you do and how you approach getting better and, and getting your team better, or if you're a player, really focusing on improving your game, improving your team, whatever it might be. I think that's the, the critical component of championship culture is, is just that everyday process and everyday approach, uh, that consistent effort. Uh, two, I think a lot of teams think that 
culture is, uh, you know, it's become this buzzword. Now it has kind of similar to the networking term had this negative connotation. I think it's thrown around, uh, you know, uh, unintentionally uh, in a lot of loose fitting ways, you know, but I, I think a lot of players or coaches would say when they look at a championship team, they have great culture. You know, and in, in, in describing that culture, it's, you know, how you communicate with each other. Your again, your con consistent approach, uh, the leadership of your guys, uh, how, you know, the standard is set and, and how they go about, you know, hunting excellence or greatness every day. You know, how do you, uh, do you have the commitment from your players? Uh, do you have the commitment from your staff? Is it, is it an all-in mentality? You know, I think culture is, you know, kind of thrown around loosely, but it's really the, you know, the, the common communication and standards aspects of a program, you know, and, and I think that's number two is just the, the culture of the program. You know, what, what is the fabric or DNA of your program? You know, what do you stand for? What, uh, what things, if I were to go to a practice or if, you know, watch a game, what three things could I take away from your program outside of, like you said, the talent or anything tangible like shot making ability or anything like that? I think those things win championships. And I think if you look at any great dynasty or any team that's won a championship on any level, culture is first and foremost there. Um, you know, and how, again, not to, to my first point, the consistency of how they go about their day to day. Um, you know, uh, I think that's that's really important, you know, and I think the last thing is leadership starts at the top. And I think for any program to have championship success, I think it starts with the leader and this, the tone is set. You know, you could probably throw that into culture as well. You know, the, the head coach is the driver of the culture, you know, but I think leadership starts at the top and that person is responsible for driving their players and staff in the right direction on a consistent basis without uh, losing sight of the goal. You know, a lot of times in our season, there's the highs and lows, the peaks and valleys. You kind of lose sight at times, you know, uh, we're all end of the world coaches, you know, like someone gets hurt, someone, uh, you know, fails a test, uh, like a, a, you know, an accounting exam and, uh, you know, they have to meet with the advisor and miss practice or whatever it might be. And, and all of a sudden it's the end of the world. Um, you know, and, and it's the head coach that kind of keeps you on the rails and doesn't let you find out, you know, fall off of a winding path. You know, I think the head coach and the leader is so important. You know, again, if you look at the, I don't know, new England Patriots, there's a reason why they're successful. You know, Bill Belichick is a winner. You know, he, he, he drives their bus in the right direction, never too high, never too low, uh, just consistent approach. You know, it, people talk about the culture of new, the New England Patriots, you know, and, and it being elite, how they do everything, you know. Um, so I would say those three things, just the consistency, the culture, and the leadership of a program. I think if you look at any any program that's had any success, those are the, the three things that I think would point, uh, stick out right away and that I, that I would point out. So 
you're you're currently at Texas Southern, which is a historically black college and university. Um, what is the importance for you of working at an HBCU and the historical aspects of Texas Southern University? You know, it's crazy. I've gotten this question like two or three times and, you know, like I, so Johnny Jones was at Nevada. He formerly was the head coach at LSU, uh, comes to Nevada as an assistant coach with us. And, you know, we just clicked right away. Uh, one of the best human beings on this planet, really good coach, but I mean, I don't know if I can name another individual that's a better human being than Johnny Jones. And uh, so, you know, obviously through your career, as I talked about, opportunities are multiplied as they are seized. And we had a chance to work together at Nevada when I was the Dobo. And uh, he got the job at Texas Southern, wanted to hire me. I never thought twice, you know, I, I never really gave it a whole lot of thought about being an HBCU um, just because like, I, uh, you know, I'm just, it's just not who I, like, I, I don't care level. I don't care school. I don't, I just want to be around good people, you know? So it, it's, it's kind of weird, you know, like people have kind of asked me about it, you know, Hey, you're at an HBCU. To be honest, I showed up on campus and no one's treated me different. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, uh, I think the more that I've, the longer, the, the more time I've spent, the longer I've been at Texas Southern, the more that I've fallen in love with the HBCU level and the culture and the history of our program and, and of HBCUs. But um, I never went into it thinking, you know, okay, this is an HBCU, uh, it's going to be different, or it's a great opportunity, or whatever it might be. I just, I knew Johnny Jones was an unbelievable human being and I wanted to be around good people. And uh, he gave me an opportunity to be an assistant coach and be on the road. And, uh, you know, I guess on the HBCU topic, I think HBCUs are critically important, uh, obviously with our nation's history and even more so with the social rights movement that's been going on over the last year, starting with the George Floyd and, and obviously with, uh, the Black Lives Matter. And uh, for me, it's been an unbelievable life experience to be around individuals that I wouldn't say have more of a vested interest or more of a uh, understanding or anything like that. But there's a culture and a history of our program, obviously being a historically black college and, and university. Uh, and of our conference and to hear people's perspectives who have lived it and, and the knowledge that they have has been unbelievable for me um, as a human being. And, and just the, the way that they've welcomed me with open arms, I can't thank them enough. Um, it, you know, the lessons that I've learned here, not as a coach, but as a as a person, you know, as a man are going to serve me for the rest of my life, especially since, again, I, you know, I'm not black and white, uh, you know, I, I just kind of, or I'm not gray. I, I'm, I call things as they, as they are, you know, like we, we coach in a profession that's predominantly African-American, you know, like, so for me to be able to have a, a better understanding of their culture, uh, how they operate, how they, how they communicate with each other, you know, 
it's only going to do me wonders in my, you know, my ability to communicate with, with other individuals, but also it's challenged my perspective, you know, whether it's known or unknown, uh, you know, like a lot of the things that people have taught me over the the last year or two are things that I didn't really even, you know, know about historical, uh, significant events that have happened um, that maybe were painted different by the, the narrative of the media. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I actually, it was just the, uh, the reunion, but the, the Tulsa race massacre, I had no idea what that was, no idea what that was. Uh, and, you know, and, and being around just people in the program, obviously our coaching staff and uh, with everything going on over the last year, to hear the stories and to to kind of hear about the history of the the Tulsa race relations and I mean it's just it breaks your heart it it just it makes you sick to your stomach when you when you hear those things and it's crazy I was those things aren't taught in the history books you know in my classes at least when I was growing up I never heard about the Tulsa race massacre but it's something that should you know history repeats itself if if you don't handle it the right way. And, and, you know, so again, it's just, it's been an unbelievable experience. I can't thank the people enough that, that are in the program, the, you know, the players, obviously the staff, people outside the program, administration, alumni, fans, donors. I mean, we have so many people that I've been able to interact with over the last year that, that have given me so much knowledge and wisdom that, that I'll carry with me through the rest of my career. So let's kind of turn it a little bit and, and kind of just talk about this offseason. Obviously, last offseason was unique for everybody. So as we kind of sort of go, quote unquote, back to normal, you know, this offseason, what's one thing you're looking to learn about more personally for yourself or study on or off the court? And then from the player's side, you know, what at Texas Southern, you know, what are, how do you guys plan for the individual improvement of, of your athletes? Yep. So every off season, and this is something that I, I picked up from a, another coach and I think we're all, you know, uh, great at stealing things from each other. So if anyone can steal this from me, please do so. Every off season, I try to find two or three things that I can improve on or things that I can learn about. And so, this, this off season was just special situations. I wanted to really dive into, you know, whatever it might be, baseline, sideline, up three, down three, foul situation, uh, you name it. I wanted to dive into that. So I took the five best sideline and five best baseline out of bounds teams. And then I also took two or three that I really liked uh, teams you know, I did the NBA as well, uh, but college teams that I really liked um, and, and charted all their baseline, sideline. Uh, we have the ability, it might be a little tougher with a high school coach. I can separate on synergy uh, basically any time situation, point differential situation, uh, where the ball is located, et cetera. So I, I was able to go through and, and pick out, you know, two or three teams and kind of what they did with certain point or time differential uh, standpoints in a game and, and just do a study on it. I, you know, I, 
and for me as a head coach, I'd like to know and have ingrained in my coaching philosophy that if I'm up three with uh, a minute on the clock, this is what I want to run. If I'm down three with a minute on the clock, this is what I want to run. If, if the foul situation is given this at a certain point in time, do I foul? Uh, you know, so I, I, that's what I did. Uh, as far as Texas Southern is concerned in our off season, we're not as fortunate uh, as some of the other programs in division one, even division two with COVID and everything that happened there. Our university, I think most universities got impacted financially, but our university, we were fortunate. We didn't lay anyone off or furlough people, uh, but obviously there was a financial impact. We didn't have our guys on campus last year for summer school, and we're also not having them on campus this year for summer school. Now, with that being said, we have, I think, seven or eight guys from the city of Houston. So with the NCAA allowing student athletes to work out without being enrolled in classes. That's been beneficial. So we're able to, to get in the gym and, and get our CARA hours or countable uh, hours in with our guys, with most of our guys, but we, we don't require them to be here. Uh, so really for them, it's just trying to make sure that they're coming into this season with the right fitness. I think last year, the biggest thing that people realized with COVID with essentially no off season was the, the, I guess, how critical it was for your team's fitness level, their conditioning, their, obviously their strength, uh, the basketball shape that they're in to be at a certain level. Uh, I know in, in my conversations with coaches, when you started the season, it was like, there's so many injuries and there's still so much uncertainty with COVID. And then you have people getting, you know, testing positive and, you know, you have eight players now and, you know, you still have half the team out of shape. It, it, it just was a nightmare. So for us, I think coach Jones has done an unbelievable job just trying to make sure our guys are in the best shape that they're in and, and ready to rock and roll when the season hits in November. Um, and even more so when, when the guys get back on campus in fall, that, that they're ready to, to jump in and, and start practicing. And, and so we don't have to ease our way into the season and try to hit our stride, uh, you know, really at the end of the year, but more so, so we can, you know, do it when, when we're getting rolling in November. So we always go into what we call the 30 second timeout. So it's our guest platform uh, to talk about anything you want, you can tell our listeners about your program. You can tell them about something you're passionate about, an outside organization, a charity, a story from a season, a unique topic. Uh, and we always joke, there's no referee uh, patrolling your 30-second timeout. So if it goes over a little bit, that's fine. But uh, 30 seconds, anything you want to talk about with our listeners? Well, I... You know, I, I don't think this has done enough, but I, I want to thank you guys for obviously what you do. Number one, I'm a voracious reader, voracious learner. I, I love learning. I love getting better. And what you guys do is a thankless job, to be honest. Like it, you know, it's, you don't get the credit you deserve. I did a Zoom last year and, uh, you know, the number of views doesn't, 
result in a pay raise. The number of listens uh, doesn't, you know. Uh, so really for my 30 seconds, I want to thank you guys and, and thank you for the opportunity because it's, you know, it's, you don't realize this, but you're building leaders and you're building a tribe of leaders and, and learners, people that are yearning to, to learn and, and get better. And you're providing a platform for them. So thank you for that. And obviously if there's ever anything that I can do to repay you, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do that, but uh, please don't ever hesitate to reach out or, or touch base. Oh, well, we're, we're appreciative of it, coach. You've given us so much uh, awesome, awesome content topics today. I mean, that, that everybody can learn for I'm, to, I'm sitting here taking notes on my phone here um, and, you know, try to apply it to, to my situation or, or adapt it to my situation. So we, we appreciate you. Um, the last segment we have is called quick hitters. It's just kind of rapid fire questions. Could be about basketball. Could be about <laughs> whatever. Um, and, you know, just throw them out there and you can, you can answer to, to the best of your abilities here. So the first one we have best road hotel that you've stayed in. Well, I can't go against the grain. We stay at Marriott. So I'll just give the, uh, the company line of Marriott. <laughs> There you go. All right. So we got your favorite show to that you're binge watching right now on Netflix or any other streaming service. I'm not a TV watcher. Uh, my, my fiance is, but uh, I, I, she does watch a lot of TV and I, I, as I'm either clipping film or doing something, I'll, I'll be kind of, it's a bad habit of mine, but uh, one show I did particularly like when she was watching it because I'm an avid chess player. Uh, and that's not just because of the show I've been playing for uh, my entire life, but 15 years uh, uh, seriously uh, is Queen's Gambit. It's yep. a show on Netflix. If you guys like yep, chess so. or if you want to learn more about it, 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 it's not just about chess. It's obviously has a great storyline. People say it's loosely based off Bobby Fisher. If you don't know who that is, then, mm -hmm. you know, then you're not really a chess fan. So uh, that's kind of my uh, guilty pleasure. I play chess and golf and coach basketball. So uh, Queens Gambit's a great show. That's quite the gambit right there. Chess, golf, and basketball. Yeah, if you, uh, so obviously now you're, you're in Texas. So we, we got to talk about some barbecue. So if you had, you went to a, a barbecue place, you could only choose one barbecued meat. What would you, what would it be? To, all right, so this you guys gonna hate me for this too. So, so I, like, I don't really eat a whole lot of barbecue. Like, I'm like, you know, I just I don't. And people are like, you know, you, you got to go try out this barbecue or this, you know. I just I don't have a favorite barbecue. I you know, I like pulled pork. Uh, people say like their sauce is the best or you know this <laughs> like, uh, you know I don't know. So I've eaten a lot of soul food down here. And a lot okay. of like, you know, Cajun, you know, Southern uh, type food, like Gulf food. And, but uh, yeah, I wish I, I wish I could give you guys a better answer. Well, Soul Food's a perfectly good answer. Uh, all right. Favorite NBA, NBA playoff team that's left. Well, I, I think if you're crazy, if you're not watching the NBA playoffs and falling in love with the Phoenix Suns, yes. I mean, right. with everyone's story on Chris Paul, I mean, the guy, people forget the Thunder we're going to, well, they're potentially thinking about not signing him a couple of years ago when he got traded there, you know, it was up in the air. Like we, you know, he's coming to training camp. We're not sure if we're going to re-sign him. Uh, and now all of a sudden this guy is leading his team in the NBA playoffs. I believe they're up three Oh, 
uh, in their series, uh, obviously beating the Lakers in the first round. And you just, I, I don't know if you don't love basketball, if you don't love those guys, I tweeted out side note that they, you know, when they were playing the Lakers, they look like a non shoe company sponsored team playing yeah. on uh, Friday at 9 PM on court two. Uh, you know, and if you've ever been out recruiting or if you've ever been out to an yeah. AAU tournament, mm-hmm you know how hard those dudes play against uh, a Nike or Adidas team. Uh, They just, they're, they're just, they're not just trying to win games. They're trying to prove to those guys that, that they're, that they're there. So uh, Phoenix Suns. Uh, Okay. So this is always one of our favorites and I'm actually going to tweak this Z. Um, I want to see with you, would you say in high school basketball shot clock? Yes or no? Absolutely. Yes. 1000% yes. The fact that, look, I get financial budgets. I get all that, but the fact that there's no, uh, shot clock in high school basketball. And I apologize if one of you guys are strongly the other way, I will not go to the grave fighting you guys on this because I have literally been at games. And I've seen the the, sco- the final score being ten to six, and one team holds the ball. I it is it is a crime to those players. It's a it's a crime what the the coaches are doing. If a coach, I get why they do it. I understand it, but it's a crime because that is not basketball. Basketball is meant to be played up and down, uh, and when you hold the ball and you're playing in a delay style just because the other team has better athletes, better players. I get, I understand it gives you the best opportunity to win, but it's a crime what you're doing to those players, period. Amen. So people are going to hate me for that, but I'll, I'll go to the grave. I coached one year of high school basketball too. We had shot clocks. And so no one can criticize me. Oh, you've never been at the high school level. No, I've been there. And I coached five years at AAU. So I, I've seen basketball without shot clocks. I've seen it with shot clocks. Trust me, it's better with shot clocks, period. All right, last one here. Uh, scouting, all right? Are, we taking, are you taking away strengths or are you trying to take away their sets? So <laughs> this is like a double-edged sword. But I think, I, you know, when I saw this question, I think the number one thing, you have to take away the opponent's strengths, period. You just have to. You know, I think the best coaches are are great at taking away opponent's strengths and obviously emphasizing your strengths. But I think you have to take away their strengths, number, number one. If you can, and I know it's dependent on level, time, resources, I get all that type of player. Uh, if you can, I think – knowing the opponent's sets, play calls, all of that stuff, like that's like PhD level stuff. You know, if you can get your, your team bought into that, I think that's a, a high level elite level of thinking. But I think first and foremost, you have to take away the opponent's strengths. So just to close out coach, I, I know you, you thanked us obviously, and, and for what we do, but you know, we are both big fans of you. We were both followers of you. You know, we've both learned so much just from, from things you've said or things you've tweeted out or talks you've given. And, and I think you're a great resource for any of the, the young coaches out there. And I, I sound like the three of us are old at this point, which we aren't, but just for all the young, really young coaches trying to get a start in the game. So Thank you for all you do for the game and and thank you for joining us today. 
No, I mean, I appreciate you guys. I, I, if I can leave you guys with anything, there's, you know, I'm a big, like I said, I'm an avid reader and it's something I kind of like to do just with coaches. I, I did a deal last year where I read over 120 books uh, during the COVID deal. Again, I read for every, an hour every morning and every evening. Uh, I, I didn't come up with that. Bob Ritchie does it. He's, he reads for an hour every morning uh, and every evening. Uh, he's a head coach at Furman. I stole it from him. I just started knocking out books. One of my favorite quotes is by Mark Twain. He says, the man who does not read good books has no advantage over the man who can't read them. Uh, so if I can give two or three books to read, please go out and get these books. Uh, they'll help you in your journey as a coach. They'll help you uh, really in any form or fashion of your life, uh, marriage, uh, business, you know, work-related. Uh, number one, I would say, is The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Uh, it's an unbelievable book, especially if you've been through any sort of adversity. Uh, that's, that's a great one. The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll give you one more. Uh, Talent Code by Daniel Coyle is another mm -hmm. great one. That's a great one for coaches. Um, I also have a, a book recommendations list. It's like 350 books. Anytime anyone's given me anything that, that I've, you know, Hey, here's a suggestion, or I see something on Twitter, I kind of add it to the list. Um, so, and it's also books that I've read. If, if anyone wants that, please don't hesitate to reach out, but uh, can't thank you guys enough. This was big time. Again, if I can ever help out in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. And, and I, what you guys don't know is I've learned more from you than you, than you could ever learn from me. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout, or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast by searching after the timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and anything in between.